Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. First then, a brief review of where we've been. We had technically 12 classes. Bofolk taught one of them. I'm not going to overview that here. It was excellent, the second class that he taught on the scriptures, to be sure. But we're going to focus on the 11 that kind of went along with this course. We began with the first lesson on an examined life. And at the outset, I just wanted to set before you to introduce you to the subject of the sufficiency, the enoughness of Christ, that Christ needs to be the only aim of your life. And I said that the life worth living is an examined life, one where you're not just going along blindly doing whatever pops up, but it's an examined life that has, and this is just as important, a worthy end. You could live a very examined, thought-out kind of life with an end that's entirely unworthy of your life. Serial killer. It's very thoughtful and meticulous oftentimes, but the end is useless. It's nothing. So you need an examined, thought-out life, but you need an end that's worth pursuing. And that end, my argument in this whole class, that end is Christ, that he is the only, and by end I don't mean termination of something, I mean goal, object, what you're moving toward. That needs to be Christ. We looked at how Paul had that. He was a person like we are people, a human being, and he actually lived that out. And he wrote to the Philippians that he counted everything else, the no more of this class, as loss, as no more, as loss for the sake, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So there is a life It's thought out, and the end of it is Christ. So it's doable. And then, secondly, in that class, said the reason by way of introduction that Christ is worth pursuing with your whole life is because Christ is God, which is important to emphasize in a society like ours that's more pluralistic, that there are more ways to God than just one. I was talking to Sue here just a bit ago. Um talking about a pastor who, she asked him, is Christ the only way? He said, no. Believe in a kind of universal God reaching out to everyone, whether through Christ or not. So it's important to affirm, like we are doing in this class, Christ and no more. It is, you only get to God through Christ. Christ is God, and therefore he's worth pursuing. That was the first class. The second one was on the death of dreams. And you remember that God allows other hopes that we have in life, even if they're good, sometimes he allows them to die. We call that a trial. And he allows those to die because you get joy from all these different hopes and expectations. So it's hard for you to know as a Christian how much of my joy is coming from the fact that I'm living for Christ and hoping in him. And you might think, well, yeah, that's why I'm happy as a Christian. And it might really be because of other hopes you have. So God graciously allows those dreams, those hopes, to die through trials because that shows then the state of your hope in Christ and allows that to be refined. We started in that class looking at one of our main texts, 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not see him now, but believe in him 
you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. And that guided us into the third class, to know and not see. And here we started to consider, okay, Christ needs to be the goal of our life, and God graciously allows other aims and ambitions to die so that we can really focus on Him. But is it really satisfying to have a relationship with Christ? Because when you have one, correct, when you have one with others, it can be satisfying because you see the person, you talk to them, you have a relationship, but with Christ, he's invisible. And that's 1 Peter 1.8, though you haven't seen him. You have never seen him. You've never seen Christ in, on earth as he lived here in the three years he was ministering. But you notice that's 1 Peter 1.8, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Even though you haven't seen him, you're rejoicing with this incredible joy. So we made the point that a relationship with an invisible Christ is really not that different than a relationship with your visible friends. And the reason is, even with your visible friends, you might see their body, but the thing that's most important in a relationship is not someone's just bare body, physical body. The thing that's most important is the person's thoughts, their intentions. Those are all things completely invisible to you. You just have to trust, right? You have to trust that your friend is not a Cuban spy, and you don't know that. And that's the same with Christ, trusting his thoughts and intentions, only you don't have his physical body. So then we moved into the next class, and we started to emphasize, okay, his physical body's not here, so how do you have a relationship with Christ then? I have a relationship with you through your words, I hear your words, and through the things that you do. That's how I know what your thoughts and your intentions are. That's what builds that bond of trust. And with Christ, it's exactly the same. Except that his body not being here, it changes in this way. His actions in our life, not through his body, but his actions are real and in our life, and they're through his sovereign control of everything that's happening in your life. When you drove here this morning... And you realize there's construction on this road, and that maybe upset you because you're already running late. Now there's construction, and it's blocking you. But you see, that's Christ involved in your life because that construction being there is not apart from what Christ is doing in your life. It's like being with your friend and they do something. There's Christ doing something in your life through his sovereign control. So there are the actions, even without a body being there. And then the next class was on his words hearing from Christ, which is vital to any relationship. You need to have some form of communication, and with Christ that comes certainly, confidently, through the Scriptures. Does Christ sometimes work in us by inner promptings? It's possible, but those are never certain things, because inner promptings could just be you. It could be Christ, but with Scripture, it's always Christ. And that's the way in John 10, when Jesus says, "'My sheep hear my voice.'" You read scripture, you find the words of Christ, you believe them, they're a word to you from Christ. So we got to the end of that, lesson five. We stepped back, said, okay, there is Christ. You can have a living day-by-day relationship with him. It can satisfy, but then there is this objection. Yeah, but I'm just an ordinary Christian. I'm not a great saint. I'm not some wonderful missionary or preacher or whatever. I'm just an ordinary Christian. So we went back to Philippians and looked at Paul. How can someone live a life like this where you really are satisfied with Christ? Paul said, I can do all things 
Not because I'm Paul the Great, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we took a lesson, lesson six, to look at the unforeseen power of Christ. We talked about the metaphor of having a car that's run out of gas. You don't have money for gas, so you buy water and you pour it into the tank. Well, you've saved face if you're on a date, maybe. But it's not going to work. It doesn't have any power to get your car moving. So the first thing you've got to do is get the water out of there and then get gasoline in. Similarly, we've got to stop trusting in ourselves, our power, our might, our ability to be a great Christian and be satisfied in Christ. Get that out of there. Focus on Christ. He provides the power. After that, we considered, in a practical sense, if we're going to live a satisfied life in Christ, day by day, walking with Him, He's going to enable us to do it. Does that mean we're never going to be sad again? And the answer to that is no. If you live a faithful Christian life, even with this joy inexpressible and full of glory, you'll be sad again. Paul, our example, sorrowful, 2 Corinthians, sorrowful, he's sad, but always rejoicing. And we made the argument in that lesson that really the goal is not a life with no sorrows, But the goal is a life where you have gotten rid of the unnecessary sorrows, the ones that you don't need. You don't need the the ones that come from you loving sin or idolatry or whatever. Those go away, unnecessary sorrows, and you keep the ones that come from compassion for others and so forth. And then you gain in Christ more of the possible joys, the joys that are available to you. Some joys are not available to you. You might not be president, maybe that would be joyful to you, but it's not available to you. But in Christ, there are many joys that are. Sad but happy was that lesson. Then we got down to the nitty-gritty. Well, I want to grow then in being satisfied in Christ. How do I do it? And the first thing we said was, obey. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. That's the one who really loves me. And we said that doesn't mean if you just do the acts of obedience kind of ritualistically, pray the prayers you need to pray and so forth, and all of a sudden you'll be satisfied in Christ. does not work that way. But if you just sit back and say, I'm going to pray and just wait until God makes me satisfied in Him, then it doesn't happen. Obedience and love for Christ, which get us excited about Christ, love for Him, which we're trying to grow in, obedience and love happen together. They walk side by side. One doesn't run ahead of the other. So if you want your love to grow, pray that God grows it and go obey, risk obedience. And then in these next two classes before we got to the final one, so obey. On the other hand, we said love begets or gives birth to love. And so meditating on the love Christ has for you is a fantastic way for you to become more satisfied in him. We considered Romans chapter 8 and the common objections we have to love Christ's love for us. The first is we're failures and we sin. So Christ loves us, but not like a lot. That's the first objection. In Romans 8, Paul says, no, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Not even you. God has a, Christ has a deep love for you. And then the second part in the next lesson we considered was, well, what about all the suffering? Christ acting in our life through construction, but also other terrible things. 
So when suffering's happening, isn't that evidence that Christ doesn't really love us as much as he says? And the rest of Romans 8 argues against that and says, okay, you got famine, you got sword, you got nakedness, peril, danger, all those things. None of those separate you from the love of Christ. That's Paul's argument. Bad circumstances do not mean Christ does not love you. In fact, sometimes good circumstances are evidence of Christ's disfavor. But rather, we have to learn to assume if you're a believer. You just have to learn whatever's coming tomorrow. You're just going to assume it's because Christ loves you. You're just going to assume it. You're not going to judge based on the circumstance, does he love me or not. You just assume it right now, and then whatever happens, you go, hmm, he loves me, so why would he do this? And you think through that maybe. But assuming the love of Christ. And then in our very final lesson last week, talked about water and sand. It was Peter upon the waves coming out, going to Jesus, and there's Jesus, and as long as Peter's eyes are focused on Christ, the water that quenches our inner thirst, as long as that's his focus, he's good, but as soon as he turns his eyes away from Christ, for him, it was because of some fear of the wind, for the crowds, it was pleasure, earthly bread, but as soon as the eyes are turned off of Christ to just mere sand that doesn't you can't drink, it doesn't quench your thirst. As soon as the eyes are off of Christ, then you're dissatisfied, then you're miserable, then you start sinking. But Christ in his compassion for his people still reaches out, grabs us and says, why do you have such little faith? Which is a good question and we're trying to grow in. So that is a review of this class. Uh, I want to start with one of these written questions here. And then uh, if you have any questions, we'll take some of those. All right. Not a question, just comment there. All right, here's the first. Question says, when Jesus was on earth for those 33 years, I understand that he continually told the people that he was speaking for God. He always gave all the glory to God. Here's my question. While on earth, was Jesus still as powerful and working within the Trinity? And that's an excellent question. So this goes back to, um, I think I have it here. I forget which lesson it was. But we talked about the hypostatic union. Big, big word, but really important. You don't have to know the word, but you need to know the concept. And the concept is basically that Jesus Christ, unlike you or me or any of us, has two natures. He has a divine nature, which he has always had. But then once he's born, conceived really, he has also a human nature. And you say, well, that's simple. He's got divine nature and human nature, so you just kind of stick them together. And then you've got a person who's 100% human, 100% divine, or maybe 50% human, 50% divine, makes 100% of a person, and that's how all the early heresies were born, if you want to read about that in the first centuries of the church. It was always trying to, it was always when someone said, oh, I got it, and then there's a heresy. So we don't ever quite get it, but we accept, because on the basis of Scripture's clear teaching, that Christ is not part human, part divine, but completely human, completely divine. Now, Why does that matter? When Jesus was on earth, living among us those three years of ministry and even those 30 years before, sometimes when you're reading in the Gospels, the question comes up, 
here's Jesus, he's God, so he knows everything, right? And sometimes it seems that way because he knows what people are thinking. Whoa, he knows what they're thinking, he knows the intentions of their heart. Or he's walking on the water because he's God, he can do anything, right? But then you come to some passages, for example, where Jesus is talking about his return and he says, no one knows when I'm coming back. I don't even know. (laughs) And you read that and you're like, oh, I thought I got it, but now I'm going to recant of my heresy and try to understand what the Bible is saying. Uh, John Piper has a great way of commenting on this. He says, you know, when we're trying to understand Scripture, because that's our authority, we always come at it with a certain certain, uh, schematic, a certain way of putting all the verses together. And that's what you have to do with anything. But our goal is not to idolize the schematic that we've made, our systematic theology, but rather to have a certain schematic that makes the most sense of the most verses. Which means, however you think of Christ and the hypostatic union here, which we're getting to, it has to make sense, not only of the times that Jesus reads people's minds, but it has to make sense of him saying, I don't know when I'm coming back. Now, the church, after a bunch of heresies and getting together and councils and wrestling through, you have the Nicene Council, you have the Chalcedonian, and they're wrestling through, how are we supposed to think about this? And the schematic that from that early time to now, people realize, yes, this makes the most sense, is that although we can't quite understand it, Christ is 100% human in his nature and 100% divine, so that when he's on earth... He does certain things according to his human nature, like he's hungry, and he's actually hungry, like 100%. As a human, he's hungry. Some of the people in heresy will say, well, he's not actually hungry. The docetists say, well, he just seemed like it, you know. No, but he really was because he's completely a human. But God can't get hungry, right? And Jesus is completely divine, completely God. So... The wording we use, and don't, don't misunderstand this as we finally understand it, we don't, but the wording we use that makes the most sense of the passages is there are some things Jesus did according to his human nature, like hunger, or in this case, the question was about his, his power specifically. Jesus has power according to his human nature. According to his human nature, Jesus could not on his own lift a mountain according to his human nature. So there are certain limitations there. But according to his divine nature, he could lift a mountain. If he wants to lift a mountain, he can do it. He created a mountain. He can uncreate it. He could recreate it up there, and it's like he lifted it. He could do whatever he wants to do according to his divine nature. And the important thing to understand is that divine nature never stopped, not even while he was on earth. So Philippians 2, when Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, another heresy more recent, or at least false understanding. Kenosis theory said he emptied himself. He got rid of some of his divineness. If you go back to the early church, no, 100% divine the whole time. But he willingly, willingly limited himself in dependence on the Father. So complete power in Jesus, according to his divine nature, yes. According to his human nature, no. But that's because he willingly limited himself there so that he wasn't completely powerful. That's why he says, my father, I could pray to him and he could send these angels right now. You're God, why don't you send the angels? Because you're God. 
because he willingly humbled himself, limited in his human nature, to show us, really the reason for that is to show us, partly, to show us what it looks like as just a human, because that's what we are, to submit to the Father. You see it in Jesus' life. Was he working within the Trinity? Yes. Always, 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 even during his earthly life. It's a mystery how that works. But if he wasn't, then he wasn't quite God. So, yes. Yes. Good question. So Marilyn's asking. So he's working within the Trinity. We said yes to that. But Jesus is saying during his earthly life, I need to go so that I can send the Holy Spirit. So the question is, was the Spirit already there beforehand? Because Jesus is God and so forth. And um, the answer is what you said, yes and no. Yes and no. According to human nature, no. And, you know, it's similar when the Bible talks about God's presence, just like the Spirit's presence. When the Bible talks about God's presence. There are some places where the Bible, you know, seems to suggest God is present here. Like in the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle and then the temple, it's a special place of God's presence. When we gather on a Sunday morning like this, we believe God's here in a special way. But you notice how I say that? We believe God's here in a special way. You can say things because biblically it's said, it's like God is here. Yes. But you know, God's everywhere, right? But what we mean when we say God's here is he's here in a special way. When, when Jesus lived his earthly life, was the spirit on earth? According to David in his Psalms, yes. Even if I go to the furthest end of the sea, there's the spirit. The spirit's here, but the spirit wasn't here in a special way until Pentecost. After if that does that answer that? I know. Good, good. No heresy. She said no, so doesn't answer that. So we haven't. I think God is so multifaceted. I think you know, and, and we do think about these things, and, and the very fact we cannot come up with an answer yeah. only shows that the answer is in Him. Yeah, Marilyn's point. God is so multifaceted, and the fact that we can't quite come up with an answer just shows that the answer is in Him. Good. Yeah. I would think that when Christ said, I must go so I can send the Holy Spirit, mm. he was, that part of him was the human side limiting himself, mm. even though he always had the divine nature. Absolutely. Whenever it pleased him and his father, yeah. he performed miracles. Yeah, yeah. And so even in his humanness, his divineness that's a great excellent comment Kathy's point was that when Jesus was saying I'm going to go the spirit's going to come he was speaking in reference to his human nature because Christ is already everywhere in his divine nature so he's not going to go or come but in his human nature he was leaving so excellent point and even she made the point too that there are times when Jesus is acting and it's hard to fully <laughs> grasp this even this point of when Jesus does miracles, is that because his father's enabling him every time so that he's really just fully limited and he's not extra? Or is it some of his divine nature shining through? I don't think the gospels quite answer that for us, but it's great. It's but it's there. It's there. Go read it. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, that we don't like or don't take any of that 
<laughs> yeah, that's good. That's excellent. Yeah, that's a great point. Mike's point was, you know, Jesus on earth, sometimes we struggle to understand the roles of the Trinity, such as Jesus' submission during his life where he willingly, willingly submits himself to the Father and says, I don't know. And it doesn't say, I don't know, but I deserve to know. Tell him. But he just says, I don't know. Just the Father knows. Because there was in Christ a willing submission. That was his role as the Son to happily submit to the Father during that time. Sometimes we struggle with that because we don't like our roles. <laughs> you know, if you had all power given to you right now, man, you're Superman, you're going to go do some crazy stuff. You're not just going to live a life of poverty with nowhere to lay your head and then die on a cross. But Jesus submitted to the Father because that was his primary concern. That's excellent. Yes, Dan. Dan. Yeah, that's a great point. Dan pointed out, and I hadn't thought of that passage at the time. Yeah, there's the woman who has an issue of blood, and she comes behind Jesus and touches his garment, and he's in a large crowd, and you remember Jesus turns around, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, everybody, because you're in a huge crowd. But Jesus said, no, I felt power go out from me. So for sure there is, at least in Jesus in his earthly life, some inherent power, whatever you want to call that, that's in Jesus himself that's, that's going out. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. I think, there's the, I think there is this, we're supposed to see in the Gospels, for sure, this kind of inherent power that we see in Jesus. And we need to see that. That's what amazed people. And that's why after Jesus stills, stills the winds and so forth, and they're in the boat, and they're like, surely you're the son of God. You know, so they see in him there's this inherent power. And it's mixed through the gospel narratives with Jesus in his submission to the Father so that there are things that he's doing. He says, I only speak the things given to me from the Father. He wants us to understand the things he's doing. The works I do are from the Father. He wants us to see them. Maybe that's where that tension comes in because there really is this inherent power, but also this limiting so that at least some of what he's doing and saying as well we're supposed to see is coming from the Father. So. Marilyn's point is, yeah, it is, at his trial, Jesus was submitting to the point of disappointing his disciples. They didn't want that to happen, but he was so concerned with submitting that he did so. Let me, let me move to this next question here. Uh, we'll try to get out a little early, too. All right, here's this next question. How do you know when you have the good things out of order in life? 
your focus on Christ, serving at church, at home, your family, so forth. All good things and good motives. Nothing as an idol, but when do you say no? How busy is too busy in serving Christ? That's a great question. So this is really a question between not exactly this, going to our last class that we had. You have water that satisfies. It's Christ living for him. Then you have sand, which is a waste of your life. And there are some things that are sand that are just so easy. If you spend four hours a day on social media, like it's easy. Like it's so easy to counsel, which is a good thing. So easy to counsel and say, hey, that's sand. That's a, a waste of life. But what about you want to do good things, you want to serve in the church, and you've got this great opportunity, and you've got this great opportunity, and this great opportunity, and you're kind of paralyzed of which of those opportunities do I take? So that's really a question of making the most use. Ephesians says make the most use of the time, buy it all up, making the most use of the time that you have. So when it comes to those things, a decision not between good and bad per se, but good and better, I think that's James 1. We're praying for wisdom. That's the first answer. And James 1 really wants us to believe that when you pray for wisdom, we can throw that out as a sort of cliche Christian thing to say, like, I'll pray for wisdom. But James 1 says, no, 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 no. If you're going to pray for wisdom, you need to believe that God wants to give you wisdom. Like he's, God doesn't want you to just go through and not know. It doesn't mean that he's going to tell you directly, boom, this is what you need to do. But he's going to guide you. He's going to guide you. You might not even see that till later, but he'll give you wisdom. I think it's important to have that confidence if you're dealing with decisions that are all good things. One, praise the Lord, you want to do good things. And two, praying that God will give you wisdom with the expectation that he will. Because obviously from a position like this, I couldn't address all of the possible choices because they're very complex. Motives are involved. What's going to be the best use of time? But actually, Deb had a good, <laughs> she, she asked this last week, she was asking about this very thing, because, you know, she writes children's books, and she has a real passion for that, enjoys that, and, like, is that, is that the most useful way to spend my time? Because obviously, that takes a lot of time, and we just say, hey, pray about it, <laughs> and then this last week, she gets a letter in the mail, and it's an advertisement for a book from Precept Institute about how do you use your artistic abilities to serve God and better his kingdom, and how do you know which ones to use? And she's got it. She brought it up all highlighted. Like, So I'm telling you, James 1 is true, I promise. So, All right. We're ready for that. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe not that much, but that's fine. Yes, Kathy. That's a great, great point. Kathy's point, and getting, I'm glad she's touching on this part of the question. When do you say no? How do you get too busy? And she's making the point, you know, God's going to direct us, and we should be so, quote unquote, madly in love with God that we desire to just serve Him here, there, there. But we are human, and as such, it's easy to become exhausted and to burn out. So there is a time, even when you have lots of good things, that it's important to be willing to say no, even to some good things. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, <laughs> who burnt out at 50 years old and died, but he had a really good 
comment that he made. He said, you imagine a man out in the field and he's got his, his scythe, how they used to get the wheat, and he'd be down there cutting the wheat, cutting the wheat, and eventually his scythe grows dull. And so it's really, he's putting a lot of effort in. It's really hard to cut the wheat at this point. So you come up to the man and you say, hey, take a break, sharpen your, your blade there, and this will be a whole lot easier. But the guy says, no, 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 I don't have time. I've I got to be busy. i got to be doing this. I don't want to waste my time. But the point is, if you quote, unquote, waste your time, if you took a little time to rest, sharpen the blade, it would actually be a lot easier to work. And I think that's built into the idea of the Sabbath. Someone was pointing out to me the other day that God instituted the Sabbath before the fall, when work was still good, there weren't thorns, wasn't cursed, but there was still a day for rest. Because God desires that. And as humans, that's important for us to find that kind of balance there. Anything else? Yes, Dan. Hmm. And it's related to the last question. <clears throat> we all desire to hear that well done, now good and faithful servant. Hmm. But there are some Christians with anxious hearts hmm. who don't have a sense of the pleasure and the light that the Heavenly Father has in them. Hmm. good. Wow. That's a good pastoral heart. Said 2 Corinthians 5.9. You probably all heard this, but for the sake of the recording, 2 Corinthians 5.9, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him, which is good. But there are some types of people, personalities or tendencies in people who have more anxious hearts, who are so ambitious to be pleasing to him that they aren't willing to rest. They feel like they need to keep working, keep working, keep working, and there's not a sense of God's favor and love and energy, and that's really where burnout's going to come from, is that sense of being driven on, not compelled by love per se, but compelled more by this sense of, oh, he's so worthy, and I just need to serve him more and more, which seems like a good thing. So how do you help with that? Dan honestly could answer that question better, but in humility has asked it, so, definitely for something like that, that would be more my own tendency, to be honest. That'd be more what I tend toward, people who pour themselves out and then get exhausted, sometimes from good motives, sometimes from, uh, from poor motives. But that was why even in this course, I made an effort, after we had talked practically about obedience, which is a vital component of love, after we had talked about obeying as a way of growing in love as well. We spent two classes, notice, two classes on Romans 8 to stir up our own love by remembering the love that Christ has for us. And honestly, that meditation on Christ's love, especially on the, um, the objection that can come up of <laughs> because there are, this is oversimplifying, but throughout history of the church, two types of people who misunderstand the gospel and we call them the licentious and the legalists, and unbelievers lie on those spectrums, but believers have those tendencies as well. So if this is where we need to be and where Christ is, loving the Father, pouring himself out, the licentious see the gospel as a license to sin. So they say things like, we're forgiven, so, you know, why not do this? I mean, God will forgive it. If I do this, God will forgive it. 
there's just less of a motivation. This was really the fear during the Reformation that the Catholic Church had. If you tell them you're saved totally by grace and you don't need the church, people are just going to go and be anarchists and do horrible things. They were wrong, but you can understand where the fear comes from because some people take this as a license. Now, on the other side, and this gets to our question, people who are more anxious and like, I got to work harder. On the other side are those who just don't rest quite enough in the grace of God. And ironically, what sometimes happens is when, and we talked about this, but when you're on that side of things, it's like, I got to work harder. I got to, you see licentious people around you who aren't doing much for Christ because they're just like forgiven. They're not doing much. And so you think, well, I don't want to be like them. And it pushes you further in this direction. And that was what we saw what Luther was arguing against. He said, even if there are anarchists who take God's grace as license, you still have to believe the word of God that says God loves you unconditionally in Christ, has a deep love for you that you can rest in. So I think it's important to know your own tendency. Where do you lean? If you're more licentious, get on it. You need to start doing some stuff. If you lean more toward very hard on yourself and it's never enough, well, you've got a heart issue that is not going to be solved by doing more things. It needs to be addressed by meditating on the love that God has, that God has for you. It's an important thing. Yes, Jimmy. Oh, oh Rick. I'm going to do Jimmy and then I'm coming right to you, Rick, all right? That's good. That's good. Jimmy's question is, what are some, just piggybacking off of that, what are some passages that would be good in Scripture to go to practically if you're wrestling with that? Rome? Yeah, feeling anxious, burdened, not resting in his grace. You just feel like you got to go. Romans 8. Actually, Romans. You know, and it's interesting because Martin Luther, read Romans. Don't we have those shirts? Martin Luther his story is interesting because that's the kind of person he was. And he was reflective of the age where there was a Catholic church. Martin Luther, you remember, became a monk. And it was not uncommon for people to become a monk as a way of getting right with God. Because that was the opinion, is that's how we're going to get right with God. And he scrubbed those floors like nobody scrubbed those floors. And he fasted till he almost killed himself. And it was because he desperately wanted to get right with God. And when he read Romans, and it said in the first chapter that the righteousness of God is revealed against unrighteous man, that's the way most Catholic interpreters had taken that passage, that the righteousness of God in Romans is God's righteous wrath and his high standard. And you can never reach it, but try, but you can't, ha ha. And that's why Luther, when he thought about God, he said, I hate God. That was his opinion, because God is harsh and we do the best we can and he throws us in hell now luther he's wrestling with this an anxious heart and the thing that opens the door for him is in romans and in galatians and in some of the psalms even prepared for that but the thing that really opens the door for him is you know romans 1 16, 17 when he reads that quotation from habakkuk second shameless plug for next time sunday school come to it it'll be in habakkuk but when he reads that paul quoting habakkuk the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul's argument is, here are the Jews. They have a zeal for God. They're the ones working, working, working to get right with God. And they're not right with God and never can be because God never meant for us to achieve his righteousness by reaching, climbing through the law, keeping all the commands, because you can't. 
The reason the law is there to show you you can't so that you go to God and say, can you give me your righteousness? And that's what happened in Christ, where he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of God. The righteous live by faith, just trusting in Christ. You grab Christ. So Romans, for sure, is, is an immensely helpful Yeah, Marilyn also pointing out passages of Christ who goes aside by himself to pray. There are times where he tells the disciples, especially when they return, going out two by two, and he says, hey, let's go away by ourselves. And then crowds come, and they deal with that, but rest. So just the example of Christ there. Yes, Bo. Yeah, Bo pointed out the story of Mary and Martha where Martha's busy, busy, busy. And she actually gets rebuked for it because Mary's just sitting there doing nothing. She's listening to Jesus' words and Jesus says she chose the better part. So that's a good example. Rick, I'm sorry, I passed you right over. I have no idea. Rick, Rick pointed out the passage where after Jesus was risen, Mary came to him and was going to grab him. And Jesus said, don't cling to me because I haven't yet, I'm not yet glorified. I haven't risen. What is that about? You got to go read a commentary or something. I really... <laughs> We could probably make a cult out of this if we wanted some strange interpretation. I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, but we won't do that. But that's a good, that's a worthy question. I just don't have a worthy answer to give back. There is, I'm sure, commentators who've talked about it. Let me, uh, let me conclude here with this uh, spoken word poem. I had written this and hoped to present it at the first class, but, you know, things get busy, like we've talked about. So this will conclude our class uh, just to point out, background to the poem, you remember Elijah when he has a contest with the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them, and the people are worshiping Baal, and here's Elijah all on his lonesome, and he's worshiping the true God. So they have a contest, and the contest is, Elijah says, I'll make an altar, you make an altar, kill an animal, put it on the altar, and you pray to Baal that he sends fire. You don't start a fire, you pray that Baal would send fire. And I'll pray that Yahweh, the true God, will send fire. And whoever answers by fire, that's God. They're like, yeah, let's do it. And Elijah wins that contest. So just some background here. This is Christ and no more. We're all put here on the planet in just the same way we stay occupied by just the same kind of day-in, day-out desires. Little fires inside our souls that dictate the way we talk, the way we think. 
that turn us to one pair of shoes and not another, that govern where our money goes and when our money stays, that sway our sense of what is right and what is true and what is beautiful. These torches of our want are dimly seen when we dream of futures we believe will satisfy. Every man and woman in this place, if they could open up the content of their mind, would set a scene before you traced with lines they've sketched a thousand times before on the tablet of their daydreams. Here are the if-onlys that we live for that are really only ifs. For one man stands and says, I would be happy only if. And through his eyes, his burning heart projects a holographic home, a lawn cutting crisp corners, and the cobblestones that run down from the front door, run down by children four and eight to greet him, and while they embrace, his knowing wife looks on and smiles. We might imagine this man to shut his eyes, and at the same time his hologram disappears, and here and there a tear begins to slide away from his imagination down his face. He asks no more than this, and longs until the longing is his only consolation, night after isolated night, awake and wide-eyed in bed, and waiting for that only if, the ceiling lit by nothing but the flicker of his desire. But now... He sits, and a woman at random stands and turns to say, I would be happy only if. The flame of yearning yawns its shadow through her eyes, and we behold the outline of a crowd in massive unity, bellowing its adulating roar, and there before them all we find the shadow of herself. So what if her father kept from her his love year after year? What if he deemed her the failure she always feared herself to be? The thousand second guesses, the unfed mutt of insecurity that nipped her heels, that hunted her incessantly is driven back, a whimpering hound now overwhelmed by the applause of infinite strangers. And the shadowy silhouette bows as her anger is defied by the thought that her existence finally is justified, that she at last at least deserves to be here like the rest of us. She shuts her eyes in time to wipe the water welling in them both, and all the shadows stop. You also have a scene, a dream, the flame of a desire that burns longingly on the altar of your inner self. And the tragedy of life is that no man-made fire can burn forever. Most all of us will never touch the lowest tip of what we want. And disillusioned by our hopes deferred, we'll pinch the wick ourselves. The man will only see his happy home projected on the ceiling of his room. The woman never will see cheering crowds except as shadows cast against an empty wall. But worse than these who find what they want are those who never find what they want are those who do, who find all that they sought and see that it is not enough, and now they have no further dream to chase. They sit before an empty fireplace without a hope to keep them warm. See, we're all put here on the planet in just the same way we stay occupied by just the same kind of day-in, day-out desires, little fires inside our souls that dictate the way we talk, the way we think, the wars we wage, the worlds we consume. But in time, these little fires fume their last exhausted breath and die, and we are left alone. But alone is not the worst place to be. 
alone, in fact, can be the first step towards something better. When the wind of disappointment whips away the final flames of our desire, and we are left without a single hope of any earthly prospect, then and only then, heaven intercedes. Mount Carmel did not see the fire of heaven descend until its altar was drenched beyond the hope of any worldly fire. But as the altar sat, dripping in its loneliness and in the absence of any other flame, then heaven opened and the fire came. It's not until the cobblestones are cleared away, the house foreclosed, the children taken as they were from Job, and all the clamor of the crowds recedes from earshot of our hope. It's not, in short, until the little fires inside our souls go out out, it's not till then that Christ appears. At first he seems a little fire himself, but then he grows. The distant twinkle of a new desire far in Canaan's sky is seen to be, as it descends, a bigger blaze than we imagined or had dreamed. And when the fire of heaven touches down and there upon the altar in the middle of the flame stands Jesus, joy of man's desiring, no worshiper of Baal or of cobblestones or crowds can then deny that this is a fire worthy of its throne, a desire that the altar of our souls was originally found passion to hold. Yes, we're all put here on the planet in just the same way we stay occupied by just the same kind of day-in, day-out desires, little fires inside our souls. But it is my contention that it does not have to be this way, and it is God's that it must not but that instead each little fire inside your soul should go out, that at that point the fire of Carmel would come, consume the other rubble all around, and that you would bow before not Christ and cobblestones or Christ and crowds, but Christ and no more. Let's. Hey, thanks. It's been a joy having you here. Let's pray together as we conclude. Lord, I thank you very much for so great a Savior as Christ and so satisfying a one who can and was meant to satisfy the souls of mankind. And I pray that it would be our aim to pursue Him, to count all else as lost, that we may gain Christ. It's in His name we pray. 